0: Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode five of the Third Crusade called the Battle of Arsouf. In the last episode, we heard about how the English and French kings set sail across the Mediterranean for the Holy Land. The English king was Richard the Lionheart and the French king Philip II. Now there was very little love lost between the two since Richard was not just king of England, but he also owned about half of France where he was the Duke of Normandy and the Count of Anjou amongst many other titles. In the strange feudal system, that existed at this time. Richard owed fealty to Philip as his feudal lord for his French possessions, but he certainly wasn't going to pay too much attention to that. Indeed, the two kings had to leave on crusade at the same time so that one of them wouldn't attack the other's lands while he was away. On top of that, Richard and Philip were very, very different types of people. Richard was an ostentatious adventurer and a bold and dashing soldier, while Philip was a rather introverted and clever politician and bureaucrat. Both men were intensely proud, so it clearly wasn't going to be the easiest of relationships when they arrived in the Holy Land. And the situation there was also pretty desperate. The Crusaders were holding out against Saladin's army in a number of heavily fortified coastal towns, from Antioch in the north to Tripoli and Tyre further south, and added to that, the Crusaders were also divided amongst themselves with two main leaders who were at loggerheads. There was Conrad of Montferrat, based in Tyre, refusing to acknowledge the rightful heir to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, King Guy, although Jerusalem was of course now in Saladin's hands. King Guy was effectively a king without a kingdom, and had decided to seize the Muslim-held port of Acre to make that his base, and he was besieging it with the main remaining Crusader army. However, Saladin had then moved his main army against King Guy so that the besiegers had become the besieged. The scene was now set for some of the most extraordinary events of the Crusades, and that's where we join the story in this episode. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. (laughs) On the 5th of June 1191, the English fleet sailed out from Famagusta in Cyprus for the Syrian coast. King Richard's first sight of the Syrian coast was the castle of Marqat. After making the landfall, he turned south past Tortosa, Jebel and Beirut and landed on the evening of the 6th of June near Tyre. He was refused admission into the town by the garrison, acting on the orders of Philip and Conrad who were suspicious of him. So he continued his way by sea to Acre watching as he went the glad sight of a great Saracen galley being sunk by his own ships. He arrived in the camp by Acre on the 8th of June. To the weary soldiers besieging Acre, King Richard's arrival with 25 galleys brought confidence and hope. Bonfires were kindled to celebrate his coming and trumpets sounded through the camp. The King of France had already built many useful siege engines, including a great stone catapult which his soldiers called the Evil Neighbour, and a grappling ladder known as the Cat. The Duke of Burgundy and the two military orders each had their catapult, and there was one built from the common funds called God's Own Sling. These had been hammering at the walls of Acre with some effect, but a leader was needed to spur the besiegers onto a final effort. The King of France was too cautious for such a role, and the other local and crusader princes were too tired or discredited. Richard brought new vigour to it all. Almost as soon as he landed, he sent an envoy with a confidential interpreter, a Moroccan captive whom he trusted, to Saladin's camp, to suggest an interview. He was curious to see this celebrated infidel, and he hoped that some peaceful settlement could be made if he could only talk with so chivalrous an enemy. But Saladin replied cautiously that it was not wise for enemy kings to meet until they had signed a truce. He was, however, ready to allow his brother Aladil to meet Richard. Three days of respite from fighting was arranged and it was agreed that the meeting should take place on the plain between the two camps. Suddenly, both the kings of England and France fell ill. It was the sickness that the Franks called Arnaldia, a fever, that caused the hair and the nails to fall out. Philip's attack was mild, but Richard was seriously ill for some days. Nevertheless, he directed operations from his sick bed, instructing where the great catapults that he had brought should be placed, and ordering the construction of a great wooden tower, like the matagryphon that he had built at Messina in Sicily. While he was still barely convalescent, he insisted on visiting his soldiers. Meanwhile, Saladin, on his side, received reinforcements at the end of June. The army of Sinjar arrived on the 25th of June, closely followed by a fresh Egyptian army and the troops of the Lord of Mosul. The lords of Shazar and of Hama brought companies early in July, inspired of this increase in strength, he was unable to drive the crusaders from their camp. They had used the lull in the winter when the rain had softened the soil to surround themselves with massive earthworks, ramparts protected by ditches which were easy to defend. Throughout June and early July, the order of battle remained much the same. The Crusader engines kept up their bombardment of the walls of Acre, but if they made a slight breach and the Crusaders rushed in to try to force it... The Muslim garrison would signal to Saladin, who at once launched an attack on the camp, thus drawing the aggressors away from the walls. There were occasional sea battles. The coming of the English and French fleets had taken the command of the sea away from the Saracens, and it was rare now for Muslim ships to be able to break through with supplies into the harbour. Food and war material were running short for the Muslims in the beleaguered city, and there was now talk of surrender. Sickness and quarrels, however, continued within the Christian camp. The patriarch Heraclius died, and there were intrigues over the election of a successor. The dispute over the crown was continued. Richard had taken up the cause of King Guy, while Philip supported Conrad. The Pisans had joined Richard's party, so when a Genoese flotilla arrived, it offered its services to Philip. When Philip planned a fierce Assault upon the city of Acre towards the end of June, Richard probably because he was not yet well enough to fight in person, and feared that he might therefore lose the spoils of victory, refused to let his men cooperate. The attack failed because of the absence of the English, and Saladin's counter-attack on the camp was only repulsed with difficulty. Relations between Richard and Philip had been complicated also by the death on the 1st of June of Philip Count of Flanders, the reluctant crusader of 1177. He left no direct heirs, and while the king of France had some claim on the inheritance. The King of England was unwilling to let so rich and strategically placed a province fall into his rival, Philip of France's hands. When Philip, citing the terms made at Messina, demanded half of the island of Cyprus from Richard, Richard countered by demanding half of Flanders. Neither side pursued the demand, but each side was left with a grievance stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. On the 3rd of July, after Saladin's nephew, Taki, had vainly tried to break through into the city, the French made a serious breach in the wall but were forced to retire. Eight days later, the English and Pisans, using a moment when the other Crusaders were at dinner, tried their luck with the same initial success but ultimate failure. But by this time, the Muslim garrison in Acre had decided to give up the struggle. They'd sent envoys to the Crusader camp on the 4th of July, but Richard rejected their proposals, though that same day his ambassadors visited Saladin, asking to be allowed to buy fruit and snow, hinting that they were ready to discuss peace terms. Saladin was shocked to hear that his men inside Acre had given up hope. He promised them immediate help, but he couldn't stir his army into making the great attack on the Christian camp that he'd planned for on the 5th of July. On the 7th of July, a swimmer brought him a last appeal from the city. Without aid, the Muslim garrison could hold out no longer The battle on the 11th was the final effort of the besieged. Next day... They offered to surrender, and their terms were accepted. Acre was to be surrendered with all its contents, its ships, and its military stores. 200,000 gold pieces were to be paid to the Franks, with an extra 400 for Conrad in person. 1,500 Christian prisoners, with a 100 prisoners of rank to be specifically named, were to be liberated, and the true cross was to be restored. If this was done, the lives of the defenders would be spared. A swimmer left the harbour to tell Saladin what was arranged, for it was for him to implement these clauses. Saladin was horrified as he sat in front of his tent, composing an answer forbidding the garrison to submit such terms. He saw the Frankish banners being unfurled already on the city towers. It was too late. His officers had made the treaty in his name, and as a man of honour... He abided by it. He moved his camp further from the city now that he could do nothing more to help it, and he steeled himself to receive the ambassadors of the victorious crusaders. No sooner had the surrender been accepted than the Muslim garrison marched out of Acre. The conquerors were moved to see it pass by into captivity, for they admired its courage and tenacity, worthy of a better cause. When the last Saracen had left, the Crusaders moved in, headed by Conrad, whose standard-bearer carried his personal standard and the standards of the kings. King Richard took up his residence in the former royal palace near the north wall of the city, King Philip in the former establishment of the Templars on the sea near the tip of the peninsula. Then the Crusaders began to quarrel amongst themselves. The Duke of Austria, as head of the German army, claimed a position equal to the kings of France and England and set up his standard beside Richard's, only to see it taken down by the English and hurled into the ditch below. It was an insult that Leopold of Austria never forgave. When he returned home a few days later, it was with hatred for Richard. The Frankish merchants and nobles who had previously held property in Acre asked for their possessions to be returned – they were nearly all of them supporters of Conrad, and therefore appealed to King Philip when the visiting crusaders tried to displace them. He insisted that their claims should be honoured. The first task to be done was to clean and reconsecrate all the churches of Acre. When this was done under the direction of the papal legate Adelard of Verona, the princes met together to settle finally the question of the kingship. After some debate, it was agreed that Guy should remain king until his death when the crown would pass to Conrad and Isabella and their children. In the meantime, Conrad would be Lord of Tyre, Beirut and Sidon, and he and Guy would share the royal revenues. Having secured the future for Conrad, King Philip of France talked of going home. He had suffered from almost continuous illness since he came to the Holy Land. He'd done his Christian duty in helping to reconquer Acre, and he would leave the Duke of Burgundy and the larger portion of the French army behind him. Richard, in vain, pressed for a joint declaration that the two kings would remain for three years in the east. But the most that Philip would promise was that he wouldn't attack Richard's French territories until Richard came home, a promise that was not entirely kept. Then on the thirty first of July he left Acre for Tyre, accompanied by Conrad, who said that he must see to his lands there, but who in reality didn't wish to serve in an army that was to be dominated by King Richard. Three days later King Philip set sail from Tyre for Brindisi in Italy. Philip's departure was regarded by the English as a cowardly and treacherous desertion, but it seems that his health was genuinely bad, and there were problems at home, such as the Flanders inheritance for whose solution he was personally responsible. He also suspected that Richard was actually plotting against him and that his life was in danger. A curious story went around that when he was lying very ill, Richard came to see him and told him falsely that his only son, Louis, was dead, either as a piece of buffoonery or in the sinister hope that the shock would prove too much for him. There were many in the Crusader army ready to sympathise with Philip. Though Richard commanded the devotion of his own men and the admiration of the Muslims, to the barons of the Frankish East, the King of France was the monarch who they most respected and who they felt understood their needs. With Philip gone, Richard took full command of the army and of the negotiations with Saladin. The Sultan agreed to abide by the treaty made by his officers at Acre. While the Crusaders set about rebuilding and strengthening the walls of Acre, Saladin began to collect the prisoners and the money demanded from him. On the 2nd of August, Christian officers visited his camp bearing Richard's consent to his suggestion that the payment should be made and the prisoners returned in three monthly installments. The Muslim prisoners would be liberated after the first installment had been paid. The visitors were shown the Holy Cross, which Saladin had kept with him and paid it reverence. On the 11th of August, the first instalment of Men in Money was sent down to the Christian camp, and Richard's ambassadors returned to say that the figures were correct, except that the prisoners of rank specifically named had not all been handed over. For that reason, they wouldn't free the Sultan's soldiers captured at Acre. Saladin requested them to accept the instalment with hostages for the missing lords, but the ambassadors rejected this. They demanded the instalment and only offered to give a pledge about the Saracen. Saracen prisoners. Saladin, distrusting their word, refused to give anything unless his men were released. Richard was now eager to leave Acre and march on Jerusalem. The Saracen prisoners were an irritation and embarrassment to him. So he was glad of an excuse to rid himself of them. Cold-bloodedly, on the 20th of August, more than a week after his ambassadors had returned to him, he declared that Saladin had broken his bargain and ordered the massacre of the 2,700 survivors of the garrison at Acre. His soldiers gave themselves eagerly to the task of butchery. Thanking God, so Richard's apologists gleefully tell us for this opportunity to avenge their comrades who had fallen before the city. The prisoners' wives and children were killed at their side. Only a few notables and a few men strong enough to be of use for slave labour were spared. The Saracen outposts near to Acre saw what was being done and rushed to save their countrymen, but though they fought until nightfall, they couldn't penetrate through to save them. When the slaughter was over... The English left the spot with its mutilated and dying corpses and the Muslims could come and recognise their martyred friends. After this shocking display of brutality, which will always be a stain on the character of King Richard and the English, Richard led the crusading army out of Acre. Conrad and many of the local barons were absent and the French under the Duke of Burgundy followed grudgingly in the rear. None of the soldiers had wanted to leave the city where they had lived so comfortably for the last month, with food in plenty and wanton women to gratify their lusts, nor were they pleased to hear that the only female camp followers permitted to march with them were washerwomen. But the force of Richard's personality overrode all of these considerations. Saladin was still at Shaframar, commanding the two main roads from the coast, the road to Tiberias and Damascus and the road through Nazareth to Jerusalem. But Richard moved south along the coast road where his flank would be protected by the sea and his fleet. The Sultan therefore followed him on a parallel course and encamped at Tel Kamun on the slopes of Carmel. From there he rode out to inspect the countryside by the shore of Carmel to choose a site for a battle crusaders journeyed past Haifa which Saladin had dismantled shortly before the fall of Acre and round the spur of Carmel. Their progress was slow to let the fleet keep up with them, and Richard believed that the soldiers should be allowed to rest almost every other day, for the wind was in the west and the ships had difficulty in rounding the point. Saracen light horsemen from time to time swooped down from Carmel on the marching army cutting off stragglers who were taken to Saladin, cross-questioned and then slain in vengeance for the massacre at Acre. The two main armies came into closer contact as the Crusaders approached Caesarea. Thenceforward, there was sharp fighting every day, but Richard led his army doggedly on. He was at his best, usually fighting in the vanguard, but now and then riding down the whole line to encourage his men forward. The heat was intense, and the Westerners, heavily armed and unused to the sun, lost many lives from sunstroke, and many fainted and were killed where they lay. The Duke of Burgundy and the French troops were nearly annihilated as they lagged in the rear behind the provision wagons, but they extricated themselves. The whole host trudged steadily on, crying out at intervals the prayer, Sanctum Sepulchrum adjuva, help us, holy sepulchre. A few days later, Saladin chose his battleground. It was to be just north of Arsuf, where the plain was wide enough for the use of cavalry, but well veiled by the forests which came down within two miles of the sea. On the 5th of September, Richard asked for a parley and met the Sultan's brother, Al-Adil, under a flag of truce. But, weary though he was of fighting, he demanded nothing less than the cession of all of Palestine Aladil at once broke off the negotiations. On the Saturday morning of the 7th of September it was clear to Richard that the Muslims were going to force a battle, and he drew up his men in preparation. The baggage train was spread out along the coast, with Henry of Champagne and part of the infantry to guard them. The bowmen were in the front line, and behind them were the knights. The Templars were on the right, at the southern end of the line. Next were the Bretons and the men of Anjou, and next to them the troops of of Guyenne under Guy and his brother Geoffrey of Lusignan. In the centre was King Richard himself with his English and Norman troops and then the Flemish and the native barons under James of Avennes and the French under Hugh of Burgundy and on the extreme left the Hospitallers. When all was arranged Richard and the Duke of Burgundy rode along the lines giving words of encouragement. The Muslim attack began in the middle of the morning wave after wave of lightly armed negro and bedouin foot soldiers rushed on the crusaders hurling arrows and darts they flung the first line of infantry into disorder but could make no impression on the knights in their heavy armor suddenly they divided their ranks and the turkish horsemen charged through flashing sabres and axes they drove their fiercest attacks against the hospitalers and the flemings and the native barons next to them hoping to turn the crusader left flank the knights held their ground and after each wave the bowmen reformed their line despite his soldiers pleading richard would not allow any part of his army to attack until all were ready and the turkish charges showed signs of weariness and until the main saracen army was closer several times the grand master of the hospital sent to beg him to give the signal to attack. But Richard still ordered patience, until two of the knights, the Marshal of the Order and Baldwin Carew, took matters into their own hands and rode out into the enemy, and all their comrades galloped after them at the first sight of the charge. The knights all down the line spurred their horses on. There was confusion at first, for the bowmen were unprepared and were in the way. King Richard himself rode into the midst of the turmoil to restore order, and took command of the onslaught, Saladin's secretary, watching from a nearby hill, gasped at the splendour of the spectacle as the crusader cavalry thundered towards him. It was too much for the Muslim soldiers. They broke their ranks and fled. Saladin rallied them in time to defend his camp and even to lead another charge against the enemy. But it was in vain. By evening the crusaders were in command of the field and they were continuing their southward march. The Battle of Arsuf was not decisive, but it was a great victory for the Crusaders. Their losses had been surprisingly small, though among the dead was the great knight James of Aven, who lay with 15 Muslim corpses around him. But the Saracen losses had been almost as small. No emir of note had fallen, and by next day Saladin had gathered together all his men and was ready to try another encounter, which Richard refused and which he was not quite strong enough to force. The value of the victory lay in the confidence that it gave to the Crusaders. It was the first great open battle since Hattin, and it showed that Saladin could be defeated. Coming so soon after the capture of Acre, it seemed to indicate that the tide had turned, and that Jerusalem itself could be liberated once more. Richard's reputation was at its height. The victorious charge had, it is true, been launched against his orders, but only a few minutes before he was ready, and his patient restraint beforehand, and his direction of the charge when it came, had shown superb generalship. Richard the Lionheart had shown that he was the best soldier to have fought in the Holy Land since the Norman Beaumond had won so many victories a hundred years before in the First Crusade. The question now was could he recapture Jerusalem itself? And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings. And if you feel like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, I'll gladly send you a copy of my book, The Byzantine World War, about the First Crusade. Just email me on byzantiumandthecrusades at gmail.com. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear what happened when Richard the Lionheart advanced towards Jerusalem.